What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project Podcast. Happy freaking Monday. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and are ready to kick this week in the teeth. I know it's a uh, it's, it feels like the winter is dragging on. I don't know wherever you all are at, but down here in Salt Lake, I swear that it will not warm up and it continues to snow. And last weekend when I was working up in Park City, it got 18 inches overnight. And I don't know about you, but that to me is a lot of freaking snow. And I'm a little, I'm getting over it because I'm looking forward to getting my motorcycle, getting outside in the sunshine, going fishing. Been talking to my buddy about getting our bear tags all lined up, getting our game plan put together for uh, for a bear hunt back in Idaho in May. And I am, I'm on cloud nine. Like I'm ready for it. And I'm ready for Rodeo season, don't tell my mom, but I'm excited because once uh, I get all recovered up, I actually just had some uh, new rope and rosin delivered so that I can get after it. So I'm excited to uh, make some new friends, link up with some buddies, and just tear it up and hope and pray that things work out in my favor. But that's kind of beside the point. Um, Today's episode, I'm excited for Mr. Todd Fox because, A, he's a freaking awesome dude, very well-spoken, and has a lot of life experience that it's really fun to listen how it all stacked up and – really how it led into where he's at now. So I'm excited for uh, him to have shared his story with me and have uh, been able to get that on recording. So before we get into it, though, if you haven't, please take a second to uh, like, rate, review, and follow the show wherever you're getting at. That's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Um, And then also, I spend a lot of time, unfortunately, on the Instagrams. It's kind of where you'll see some of the shenanigans that I get myself into, which lately seems to be quite a variety of interesting and dumb luck shenanigans in a very good way. Uh, I've been able to experience a lot of fun things that life has just presented itself to me that I really have been like, you know what, that sounds like fun. And I would regret it if I didn't jump after going and hunting hogs in the middle of Texas or uh, jumping on bulls, for instance, or, you know, whatever the case may be, it doesn't matter. But uh, please take a sec, you know, I'll link uh, the uh, Instagram uh, information in the episode description as well as Todd's and his website. Um, But also, I've been super fortunate over the past couple of years to have uh, partnered with a variety of different companies. One of them is uh, Midwest Gunworks. And I met Cameron. He's kind of my point of contact down at, uh, at Midwest Gunworks down at SHOT Show this past January. Awesome dudes. And I'm super thankful to have uh, partnered with them. They offer a 5% discount to uh, the Vanguard Project listeners. So if you use code Vanguard on Midwest Gunworks website, you'll actually get 5% off, which... As I'm sure many of you know, building a gun or buying parts adds up really, 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 really fast. So 5% can go a long way very quickly. Um, Here quick, I'm going to be ordering uh, some new parts for uh, one of my rifles, and I will be... uh maximizing their expedited shipping because that is one thing that they do not skip a beat on so be sure to use code vanguard uh for five percent off at midwestgunworks.com but otherwise i'm going to stop yammering and we're going to roll a wicked episode with mr todd fox What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project Podcast. My name is Austin Jardine, and uh, I'm excited because with me today is Mr. Todd Fox. And I'm excited because we were chatting a little bit, and I, in uh, in no uncertain terms, have lived only a fraction of a life that you have, man. So I'm excited to kind of get to know your story a little bit, go kind of lead into the book that you're uh, your work or that you have written, kind of getting out to the world with some protective concepts or concepts and everything. So I don't want to take your intro. So if you don't mind, man, introducing yourself a little bit and uh, we'll kind of just BS for a little while. Yeah, sounds good, man. Uh, my name is Todd Fox. I run a company called the Close Protection Group uh, that specializes in celebrity protection, executive protection, dignitary protection. Um, background from the Marine Corps, from law enforcement SWAT team, other types of security, uh, professional MMA fighting, and I'm still an active uh, BJJ black belt competitor. So that's that's a short bio. A short bio, yeah. which has a lot of information kind of tucked away in it. So kind of like I was saying, I like to kind of tell your story a little bit and lead into how you got to where you are. I mean, what led you down the Marine Corps path? Was that something that you had always wanted to do? Did you kind of get, uh, I guess, get told, hey, either it's either jail time or Marine Corps? How did that happen? 
No, I, I was fortunate not to to be given that option. Um, Marine Corps was um, a pretty crazy choice, but it was based on what I had seen my witnesses as a kid. So I went straight out of high school and, um, you know, the Marines were really big on physical fitness. They were really big on shooting and they traveled around the world. And uh, as a young guy, I was into all that stuff and I wasn't into sitting in a classroom. So I knew I had to go to college at some point because that's just the way society was working at the time but I didn't want to do it. And so I thought that the Marine Corps would be a good option for me to be productive, but do the things that I like to do and get that experience under my belt. And, uh, I, you know, in my family, no one in my immediate family had served in the Marine Corps. Um, so I didn't know a ton about it, but a couple cousins that I had, uh, second cousins that I had were Marines and, uh, you know, seeing them go through the process was inspiring looking at them in dress blues was crazy and then going out of the range with them and seeing you know them hitting targets at the time it was huge 500 meters 600 meters and they were just banging headshots and i was like oh my god this is this is magic this is voodoo and uh so that was that was the route and um the best possible thing i could have done at the time yeah so for you then was the uh the military route mostly just because you there was all of the components of it, the, of life that you wanted out of it. So just the fitness and I mean, or was there any other, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was, I was a, I was a patriotic kid. I was raised in a patriotic family. And, and so the idea of getting the things I want while serving the country at the same time was huge. I mean, that was, that was everything, you know, if you think about that, you know, when I sent up, I was 17 years old, you don't have much of a frame of reference for life or what is even available to you in the point in time. And then the thought of coming and sitting in a classroom, uh, you know, for six to eight hours a day, uh, and then, you know, getting trashed on the weekends. I, I, I certainly uh, was not ready for that because if I was on there, it would have been, you know, partying and girls and the schooling component wouldn't have happened at all i wasn't ready for that yeah so when you started in the marine corps did you have an idea that you of a of a career path that you wanted to follow or did you know anything about it no i didn't know much about it i mean it, the thing about the marine corps that's different than the army and the navy and the air force and the coast guard um, is that every marine goes through very specialized training so you go through 13 weeks of boot camp and at the end of that uh, you go to an mos school but before you go to an MOS school um, you go through an infantry training a marine combat training so the the adage in the marine corps is that every marine is a rifleman first so no matter what job you had um, you know, you would be trained like an infantryman. And then I also uh, went to training in the infantry as well. So it, it kind of was a, a double, but um, the, the value uh, that I saw and experienced in that man was, was vast, but I didn't really know what options there were until I got in. And then when I got in and started seeing things, it kind of opened up a ton of doors for me because the Marine Corps has, and all branches have what they call B billets or secondary duties right? That aren't related to your primary job. So if my primary job is infantry, I'm a small unit leader in the infantry and uh, they take me to a B billet, I'm no longer doing that job. I'm doing another job like recruiting or working. You know, one of the jobs I got was at the motion picture liaison in LA, where you teach actors how to walk and talk and move like Marines and you edit scripts. And so I had no idea. So there was no way for me to shoot to that because I didn't even know that thing existed until I got in. It was it was crazy. Every job that exists in the civilian population in society at large exists in the military. They just call it something different. They do it in a different way. Um, but if you're there long enough, you kind of start to figure out how things work and figure out how to get to one of those places that you want to be at and have that experience. Huh. I had no idea that there was a motion picture liaison. I was checking your website out and I, it hit the, for the first time when I was reading it. I was like, I had no idea that was a thing. Like, it makes Neither sense. No. <laughs> nobody, so, nobody, nobody knows that. But here's the deal. The, the cool thing is there's a guy and I don't know who it is now, uh, but there's a guy that sits in an office. Uh, at the Pentagon, and he basically gets script from these big houses, these big film houses, and they'll send him the script, and he'll look at it, and then he'll say, yeah, I think this could be right, and then he'll send it to an office in L.A., 
to have actual military members look at it and he'll say, what do you think? And they'll come back and say, yeah, this is good. Uh, at the time it was this guy, Phil Strube. So you tell Phil, yeah, this is it. And he says, okay, we're going to approve you working on this. And then we're going to approve DOD giving assets to this particular production. So what that means is they would get access to say a base um, and they would get access to people that are training. So they don't take away the training mission that that group had. All they do is allow it to be filmed. And then they use those guys as extras and they don't have to pay those guys. They can't pay those guys to do that. So what happens at the end is that particular group, like whoever it may be, it could be, you know, Fox 20 century, it could be Sony, it could be whoever. Uh, if Sony pictures is doing it, then at the end of the thing that they filmed, they would then pay to, in Marine Corps, they call it MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. They would pay to MWR uh, like a donation. It's like, hey, here's 50000 and And then MWR takes that and gives that uh, basically to Marines through different activities. Like, oh, we're going to pay for you to go hunting for a week here. We're going to pay for you to, to go canoeing here. We're going to pay for you to go train, whatever. So um, they can't pay them directly, but they do it that way. And everybody wins at the end of the day. And then DOD gets the recruiting value of that production, right? So if you think of something like Top Gun, that was massive. And I know you weren't around at the time, but I can tell you as being a kid and watching <laughs> Top Gun, it's like, oh man, I want to do that. That's so cool. So there's you know uh, that benefit for the DOD and then obviously all the ancillary benefits for the production company. I had no idea. That's super cool. So thinking about that and kind of maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but I don't want to jump too far too far ahead did that kind of experience lend into kind of going into the tour the the tour security and protection world yeah i had done a ton of other military specific jobs in the marine corps mm -hmm. uh there was no way to make that that leap without that piece that piece was was part and parcel to getting into the entertainment side uh doing security so i was doing security down in mexico um freelance stuff and then uh as i was doing that i was fighting professionally and i was training a guy named hicks and gracie's academy in la and he had famous people coming and going on a regular basis and uh, eventually a person came in and the guy that was uh, from the UK, he said, Hey, I want to train with the guys that, that do MMA or have done MMA. And at the time I was the only guy that had fought professionally in MMA at the gym. Um, so he started taking privates with me and uh, he was working on some films and he had started dating a famous person. And um, one day after work, still in the Marine Corps, uh, I went over to his house and met his fiance who was Madonna. And uh, once that, once that happened, you know, he basically said, I want to keep training jujitsu. She needs an extra security guy on the team. Are you interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, I get out and you know, whatever it was, six weeks or 12 weeks. Uh, and when I got out, I had a job waiting for me and uh, that was kind of my entry into the touring side. So um, it was predicated on a couple of other things, but not really uh, the security side of it, uh, unfortunately, because they don't, they don't really know that fighting has no relationship to doing actual security. So yeah. I got hired for, for my fighting prowess. Okay. So I have a couple, I'm trying to think of how best to ask these questions. So one you were so you were in the Marine Corps. <clears throat> you were fighting MMA professionally, right? So, yeah. if we could talk maybe for a quick second on how that came about. I mean, how long had you been fighting? What brought that about? Yeah, I did martial arts. You know, starting at an early age, I was probably like fourteen or fifteen, and doing uh, karate and and a variation of judo, and then I started training. Um, in jujitsu after i was on recruiting duty in the marine corps because a brazilian guy had opened up a gym um this is like 95 time frame a gym right next to the recruiting office and i was doing kind of like a, a bare knuckle karate style with a guy a, a former marine and former uh, law enforcement officer and he had been teaching me for years and he said you know what why don't you go next door and see what those guys have to offer check out you know, check out what it is they're doing. But I've seen Hoy Gracie now for a year or two kicking people's asses in the ring or the octagon. And, uh, you know, maybe they have something to take away. Their, their stuff looks good. So he said, go train with them. And uh, I went next door and I was used to kicking the shit out of everybody. Uh, and I went in and watched them and 
um, eventually got to, to train with them. And my first day, the first experience I had was a kid who was like 150, 160 pounds and probably 16, 17 years old. And, um, like 30 seconds in, the guy was choking me and I thought it was a fluke. And when again, the guy did the same thing to me again. So I ended up, you know, taking an ass beating that day and the next day and the next day, and the next day for months until I figured it out. But, um, so that instructor, Rodrigo Vaghi, uh, was Hicks and Gracie Black Belt, which is how I ended up at Hickson's in LA when I moved out there. Um, he was really big on what they called at the time, no holds barred or in Portuguese, vale tudo, uh, anything goes. And so the guys that were tough in the gym um, were getting these fights, the NHB fights. Um, and at the time, it was, it was illegal. So it was underground. Um, the Marine Corps had kind of um, at it and said, okay, well, you cannot do this uh, at the same time. They ended up sending guys out to watch and then do like pull-up challenges and stuff like that to recruit because that was a good recruiting tool. So uh, that was another interesting experience, learning the politics of, of the military and how they say one thing and do another in many cases. So um, so I was doing that. And then I was working at a, a Marine Corps site after that to try to stay in town, which is the federal record center dealing with uh, information on, on veterans. So let's say, you know, we had an active shoot or something and the guy was a former Marine. We'd pull up his, his record and looking like, okay, this guy has very specific training. He's, he's a, a sniper. He's, he's got this psychological training. He's been through serial school. He's been through advanced special, whatever. So, um, and then we'd send that to whatever the entities are in federal law enforcement, who would then go tracking and whatever else. So I was doing that fighting. And then while I was there, I started getting messages from, uh, the Marine Corps motion picture liaison. I'm like, what, what the hell is this Marine Corps motion picture liaison? And, uh, they were getting records on different guys. Um, so like Spielberg had a right-hand man named Dale Dye and Dale Dye you know, did the choreography. He's in a bunch of movies too. Um, and you know, they pull up his record. They want to confirm that he did this or he went to this place or whatever. And as I started talking to them and dealing with them on a regular basis, um, I found that they were having this gap and the person running the office or two officers and one enlisted person, uh, it was a female. She said, Hey, there's going to be this window of about a year where they can't fill this gap. When I leave it, you know, if you're interested, now is the time for us to start kind of building this thing to transition you into this spot out here at the motion picture. And, and I was dumbfounded because I, I couldn't even process that. Like being in the Marine Corps fighting and then working on films, uh, it was, it was, it was crazy. So long story short, uh, we, we manufactured the documents and the, the, uh, the, the narrative needed to put in for that billet. And I got that billet, um, just by chance. And I filled kind of a hole and in that, you know, within being in that office, I would say within a week, I was working on a thing called Jag, uh, which is, was a, an old television show, um, you know, back in the, the, late nineties, early two thousands timeframe and going out on set and telling actors how to do things. And it was, uh, it was, it was odd. And, uh, within probably six months of being there, I was in Prague working on the born identity, you know, talking to Matt Damon and showing Marines who are on MSG duty, Marine security guard duty at the embassy, teaching them how to clear wells for the cameras, right? So they had their own tactics, techniques, and procedures, but then we would need to modify it for the cameras so the directors and producers and things would accept it. And uh, so that's kind of how that all unfolded. And um, and then once that happened, I was at Hickson's in, in LA because that's where we were based at, at the 405 in, in Wilshire. And um, from there, it just kind of, it, it snowballed. And I took one thing and, um, you know, I don't know if you know Fibonacci sequence, the, the spiral where you take, you know, one thing and turn it into two and two plus one is three and three plus two is five. And yep. it kind of circles out. That's exactly what happened to, to my career. And, um, you know, we're 30 something clients in and thousands of tours in and 148 countries in and, you know, 750 something cities in, and it just keeps going, man. <laughs> So I'm going to ask yeah, this question. Boy, you can fact check me on all that stuff. No, all that no, stuff no. Is, is available to the public. Yeah, no, I believe it hundred percent. So one question I have, and this is kind of for fun. And I asked some of these questions in the vein of if somebody else is listening, they're like, I want to be like Todd or holy crap. I never knew this was a thing. Did you actively look for these types of like, um, opportunities, I guess you could say, or did they all just like, boom, land in your lap and you didn't say no. 
No, I, I, clearly uh, you had to take opportunities that came and to get those opportunities a lot of times there were risks that you know you had to take and and there were a lot of risks that i took at the time you know i certainly wasn't risk adverse as you're younger you're willing to take a lot of risk because you don't have as much to lose or you don't know what you have to lose um so i i did that and i saw everything as a stepping stone while i was doing it i was scanning and assessing and looking at my environment to see what i could utilize to go to the next level and um and that coupled with luck right because you know, I went to the place and I looked for the thing and eventually found it or somebody brought one thing that led to a second thing or a second thing that led to a third thing. Um, you know, it was, it was partially luck and partially kind of creating it. And and like we talked about Fibonacci sequence, right. Adding one thing to another to keep growing it, to chunk it together, to build a bigger thing than it, than it actually was. So part of it, uh, manufactured and, and part of it just right place, right time, which I don't discount. I'm very lucky to have had some of the mentors I've had and then to have been in the right place at the right time. That's, that's a major factor. And I think most people that are successful, if they're honest, they will, they will talk about that. And if they're disingenuous, then you'll, you'll hear them saying that, you know, luck had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So in all of this, this is one of my favorite questions kind of leading up into getting into the entertainment side of things and kind of both actively looking for accepting luck for what it was taking the risk, right? What was the most, valuable thing that you learned that you'd be like, man, if I was a kid to go back in time, I would tell myself X, what would X be? Um, well, probably in hindsight, uh, that, you know, shortcuts are, are probably bad ideas. Um, when I took the long painful road, it always produced great results. And anytime I sought out a way to shortcut something, generally speaking, there was a, a heavy price to pay for that. And, and on you know, the longer paths, the, the hard paths, uh, there are a lot of lessons that in the moment they suck. And, um, you know, you, you don't realize kind of what you're learning, especially when you're young. Um, so take the long road, take the necessary road, you know, uh, burn the candle at both ends. Everybody's like, no, don't do that. That's bullshit. You know, you have a, a finite amount of time and energy. And also the more that you're working towards something, the more energy you're creating on that subject or in that realm, the, the more dividends it's going to pay. So I, I think a lot of guys, when they say, like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. You should just fix it on this thing. Nope. Go burn it in both ends. Do everything you can, you know, within your power to kind of push your agenda or, or the, the desired outcome that you're trying to get to. So in, in hindsight, uh, everything that was of value took a lot of struggle. Right. And that's true in the military. That is true in, in fighting It's true in security. Um, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, starting in jujitsu, used to being the guy who could kick everybody's ass, then coming to school and have a kid just toy with me. Um, that was a long road because imagine, you know, what happens to your ego, your ego gets completely crushed and you see yourself differently. You see the situation and then you're fighting yourself because what happens is you start to try and make excuses for why that happened. Right. I'm trying to find a way to explain to myself how this child just toyed with me. Um, and it's, and it's just trying to accept the weakness and trying to accept what I need to do. Like now I got to suck it up and go back in there. And I know that going back through that door means I'm going to take an ass whooping and I got to keep doing it. And it's just, you're, you're reinforcing that you're a weak person, but the reality is that going through that door is, is making you stronger and stronger and stronger and being able to not just deal with the weakness, but to try to overcome it consistently. Um, and so jujitsu is a great metaphor for that, right? Because it's a constant struggle. It requires you to be focused and it requires you to be in the now. Um, you know, if, if I'm thinking about what happened last week, I'm getting my ass kicked. If I'm thinking about how I can get to the next spot in the middle of a roll, I'm getting my ass kicked. I have to be in that exact moment in time dealing with that thing as it unfolds in order to be successful or at least be able to survive. So, you know, that's the lesson. It's, it's the hard route that pays dividends in, in my opinion, if, if I were to look back and talk to, you know, a younger me, it's like, yeah. just stay the course, deal with the bullshit. It's going to pay dividends. Just, just suck it up and do it. So to summarize what I think I heard <laughs> one, burn the candle, candle at both ends, take the long road because that's where all the lessons are. Be in the present moment. And accept that on any given point in time, you're going to get your ass kicked. All true. All okay. true. Okay. So 
without maybe I guess maybe to ask, is there anything kind of before we step into the entertainment side of things and how you got into security? Is there anything that we skipped over that you're like, oh, I want to make sure that we get this out there? No, I mean it, it's it's obviously condensing uh, thirty years <laughs> into five minutes or or ten minutes is is impossible. But um, no, I think I think that's a good kind of lead up to where we we're at when the transition we made from being on active duty in the Marine Corps to working for Madonna and flying around the world on private jets and staying in five star hotels and and then all of the weirdness that comes with paparazzi and famous people and you know, it's a bubble. And so it's, it's quite a transition from the reality of life. And in the Marine Corps, everything is very serious. And, you know, you're talking shit and joking with your friends and doing whatever, but at the end of the day, if you don't do your job, you know, the result is that people can die. Uh, whereas in entertainment, everything is make-believe. Everything they say is make-believe. Everything they do is make-believe. Everything is for this, um, you know, a uh, phantom that you're creating or this, 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 uh, you know, screen that you're trying to build for the person that's looking at it. Um, so it's, it's quite a transition. So that's, that's a good transition point from Marine Corps into entertainment. Okay. So that transition then, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you were hired on initially for your fighting prowess, right? Which I'm aware, not fam- like I'm aware of not familiar with the difference between, excuse me, fighting being, you know, an active situation versus security being a little bit different, right? How did that transition happen for you? How did you kind of learn to navigate that and kind of become an SME in that world? Um, I had had exposure through the Marine Corps and through some private entities in, in the protective service operations field. Um, so I knew the difference. It's the clients that didn't know the difference. And I realized that I was leveraging my fighting to get to the security job. But for people that don't know, um, fighting means that all of the measures that you put in place have failed. So the job of security is to protect people on a number of fronts. One is, you know, from physical consequences, physical harm, meaning someone shooting them or stabbing them or punching them or bludgeoning them or whatever. Uh, another one is protecting information of that person. Another one is just you know, pre- preventing certain hazards from occurring, car accidents and slip and falls and all kinds of different things. But when you operate in a moving environment, every space is a transitional space. So you're moving from a private jet into a car, a car service, a private vehicle, and you're driving to a hotel. And then you're going from the hotel back into a car to a venue, like an arena or a stadium. You're going back in the car to the hotel and then back from the hotel, back to the private airport to get on the jet. And then you repeat. So you're constantly living in transitional spaces, which present a lot of dangers. And how we offset that is through prior planning. So protection is is essentially choreography. It's a lot of advancing. It's a lot of site surveys. It's a lot of communicating with people and setting up systems in, in each of those locations to mitigate very specific threats. So you would send an advanced guy ahead. He would do a walkthrough, collect information, communicate with the local you know, leaders or powers that be in that particular field or, or in that particular site. And then they'd put together an advanced package and they'd send it to the guys that are going to show up the next day or an hour later, whenever it's going to be. And then they would know exactly what to expect. And so the idea is that you establish a baseline of normalcy and you're able to identify the anomalies that are occurring, which are the things that can hurt you. And when the anomaly occurs, you say, is that a benign anomaly or a critical anomaly? And if it's a critical anomaly, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue as planned? Are you going to change course? Are you going to cancel the operation? Um, So in a nutshell, really 90% of protection comes down to the planning phase, right? Tons of work and advancing and setting things up and organizing stuff and structuring it so that when they come, it's a controllable space and you've got these metrics to look at in order to adjust your posture. So fighting is very reactionary, right? And we want to be proactive. We don't want to be reactive. Action is faster than reaction. And there are a lot of things that come with fighting. Let's say it's let's say it's a, a one or two man detail and we have some type of attack and I go and I deal with that threat. And let's say it takes two people to deal with the threat. Who's watching the principal, right? You, you create that, that distraction or diversion. That's no good. You know, I need to be evacuating my principal and getting them to wherever I plan to get them to in this particular emergency. So 
fighting is the last line of defense, the last thing that you want to happen. And it's also very costly. It can cost me or my client or my teammate their lives. Uh, it can also cost financially because there's a ton of liability associated with rich and powerful people. Um, and I'm an agent acting on their behalf, which means that if they can somehow get me to make a bad choice, then they can go after that particular artist who has deep pockets. So fighting is a really, really bad option. I'm not saying that I don't love fighting and that I won't continue to fight the rest of my life. That's part of who I am. It's in my DNA. Um, but it's not a good strategy and it's not a, a, it's not the lion's share of protection. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. You know, it's, it should be less than 1%. Um, so that's the, the way that I would uh, kind of present it for people to understand why fighting really isn't what, what you should be doing, or that's not the super heavy skill set. You know, skill sets, you know, by and large are more valuable uh, in the realm of soft skills, right? Being able to communicate with people, being able to organize things, being able to present uh, material, being able to make adjustments on the fly. Um, the hard skills are great. It's part of it, but it's a small part of it. So yes, I can shoot. Yes, I can fight. Yes, I can drive. Um, all that's good stuff, but that's when things fail where that's the last contingency. So I kind of, I kind of keep going back to this, <clears throat> this one question then. So I've heard that before, right? That, uh, fighting is the 1%, the 1% that you avoid at all costs, right? And that it is the pre-planning that makes the difference. And now something I haven't really quite asked or fully understood is when you do the whole pre-planning process, and, and I don't know how much of this is like a, a, an industry secret, so stop me wherever, but, um, when you're doing the pre-planning process, is it just you boots on the ground? Like you're the guy that's out there kind of sitting on the street or do you have a team that's kind of putting this packet together? How does that go down? Let me just ask you a question. I'm going to answer your question, but I want yeah. to ask you a question first. Okay. It's akin to what you're asking me just to put it into context for you. How much does a car cost? Uh, let's just say $30,000. I can get a brand new Ferrari for 30,000. You can no, I can't. Oh. My, my point my point is that without the context of who the person is, what the threat is, what they're saying, what they're doing, where they're going, I can't answer your question effectively. But what I'll say is that we have details that are, you know, one man details, a single uh, operator on a detail. And then we have ones that were there a couple hundred people on uh, a detail. So imagine you are, uh, let's say you're a low profile celebrity who is not involved in talking about anything controversial. And you're going to Billings, Montana um, to go to a rodeo. Um, you know, one guy is probably all you're going to need. And he's going to do most of his advancing on the phone or through Zoom or Skype type meetings. And he's going to collect stuff off the internet with respect to how things are laid out, what they look like, mapping, um, all the stuff that he needs, he's going to get from a distance. And then he's going to either get there with you or get there just ahead of you and, and catch you on arrival. And then you're going to do your thing and you're going to do it in reverse order. Whereas let's say you are um, a super high profile person um, that most people in the world know. So, you know, whatever we are, 7.5 billion people, let's say two or 3 billion people know who you are and you are knee deep in controversy talking about politics and religion. And now you're going to go from your little safe haven to a third world country and everybody knows you're going there. So even entities or players that, that don't like what you're doing, who, who are in other locations are going to easily be able to come to that third world and access information and access you, our, our posture, our structure will change and it won't be one guy anymore. All of a sudden it's going to go from one guy to 50 guys or hundred guys or 200 guys. And it'll be, you know, me and my team plus local nationals that support might be military. It might be law enforcement. It might be contract security. And then we'll adjust our posture to the threat profile. So, it's not a one size fits all. And anybody that applies the exact same methodology to every environment in every situation is going to fail eventually. So, you know, it's, it's akin to you asking, you know, what, what does a car cost? And, and the answer is like, tell me the details that surround that, right? Is it a, you know, a 1972 beater? Uh, is it a, you know, 2000 or 2023, you know, high end exotic? Like, what is it that we're dealing with? And I can tell you, 
basically how much it's going to cost. And so that's how we structure things. We look at the totality uh, of the circumstances and the details and the factors that surround a particular person. And then we build something specific to not only that person, but what's going on in the moment and then where they're going to do their thing at, because that environment is going to have a massive impact on our security structure. Yeah. So that is a, I like that analogy and it makes sense because it's scalable, right? The answer is, is it, it depends and it's based off of scale and relative cost. Now, another thing that I've got kind of specific to you and your experience, right? Is, uh, is that something? So when you walk in and you're starting to do kind of maybe trying to find a new client, pitch yourself to somebody, or in this case, you know, I know we're going to get to talking about your book here soon, right? Are, are there, is everything that you're doing and providing to these, these clients based off of experience where you walk in and you say, Hey, I've done a, B and C X, Y, and Z, or are there credentials that you're also walking in with? So in, in most of our business, we don't sell to the client. Uh, the client will get our information word of mouth. Like we've had a website, for example, tourprotection.com for 26 or seven years, right? And we've never got business from a high profile client off a website. We get it through word of mouth recommendation. So we're sold immediately by someone else. And and, and that person might not even be qualified to give uh, you know feedback or information on us, but they do. And that other party accepts it and then they call us. So that's normally how our business works. And that's how 100% of our business works in entertainment. So if it's a music tour or if it's a film shooting on location, all of it comes through an artist directly, uh, a manager, a tour manager, production manager, a set manager, um, one of those entities. So we don't have to come in and do any kind of hard selling at all. But sometimes we'll ask for a bio. Sometimes we'll ask for a CV or a resume. And, and we'll provide that, you know, that obviously outline our military, our law enforcement, you know, our protective service operations. It'll look at the history, where we've operated, what we've done there, who we've worked with, if we're able to, to say that. Um, and giving them a better kind of feel for who we are and what we do. Um, but really it, it changes for everybody. And, and just like personality types, right? Um, you know, a guy can be born in the hospital in the same hospital as you on the same day and have a similar kind of background in terms of parents, but you get a personality type that's completely different. And so when you introduce that into these different realms, you're really dealing with that individual's personality and their, their proclivities. And, you know, you're, you're looking at how they receive information and process information and how they make choices. And the, the broad stroke in entertainment is that most of it is not using the military law enforcement component, which is more strategy and logic and, and reason. It's mostly emotional. And so they process things different. They experience things different. And, and we have to adapt to that because we're coming into their worlds. So it's, it's very different depending on who you're talking about. Whereas if, if, uh, you know, we have a prospective client that is a C-suite executive, nothing like entertainment at all and how we interact with them, how we process things. And I'll give you an example, you know, in entertainment, a lot of times they bring people in and they don't do a background check on them and they don't do a credit check on them and they don't look at, you know, indicators, um, you know, drug history and other things, because that's the norm in that business is to accept whatever. Whereas if we go in to deal with a C-suite executive, when I come in, there's a corporate guy that's already pulled a background on me and he's looking at who I'm associated with, what I'm saying, what I'm doing. You know, he goes into, into really depth, gets into the weeds on my background before I get even brought in to be interviewed for a particular job. And our work is contract work. So we don't, we don't stay with a corporation or stay with, uh, you know, an artist or, or whoever we, we get brought in for a very specific task and then we leave. So it's different depending on who we're talking about and, and their, their protocols for hiring people and assessing people is, is extreme. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of the spectrum and then the other. So, you know, in, in one case you're immediately hired because they like you because you're a good fighter. And in the other case, you know, they're digging into the weeds and asking you about why you did something when you were 17, you know, it's, it's, it's just, they're not even comparable. Huh. Okay. So maybe on a more fun note then you've, uh, <laughs> because we were talking before we hit record and you've, you, it's kind of funny because I feel like having been in some of the situations that you've been in, you've met some pretty cool folks and been able to do some pretty cool things. And one thing I can 
relate to is the bull riding. Yeah. We, we talked about this kind of being a fun thing to kind of like go a little off topic with. Yeah. So I feel like now seems yeah. like a good time. You've ridden a couple bulls. How how much shit did you get when you first got on your bull? I mean, like, how did that how did that happen? Because I can tell my yeah. story too. Yeah. I, so how it happened is kind of a whole nother thing. So I was in LA and I was with a client and an agent and they had a relationship. Actually, the agent, um, you know, was representing PBR at the time. And I, I, I now live in the country, but I grew up in the city. And so I was a city boy and I really wasn't familiar with how rodeos operate. I had been to him and seen him, but in terms of, of promotion, in terms of professional bull riders, I, I had no understanding. I was, I was ignorant. And they invited us this thing. And this agent uh, was with William Morris Endeavor. And he was like, you have to see this. You have to see this thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I've seen a rodeo before. What's the big deal? I don't understand. It's not that entertaining. And I thought, it, right. But it turns out that he's spot on. He's exactly right. There's this massive production with, with pyro and, and bulls with their backstory and their history and their personality profile and writers that have a whole story and how they pair them up and how they make this big to-do and this grand entry. And they got all these sponsorships from big corporations. And I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is a big deal. And then seeing how it works and seeing how cool it was, at the end of the night, I had asked the president of the PBR, who I just met, if there was a way for me to get on a bull. And I was asking, you know, if I could get in a bull on a bull that in that moment, but the reality in terms of liability, I understand they're not going to throw me in a bull. <laughs> and also those, the, the, those bulls were very different than what I should be getting on. So he said, listen, I, I think you're crazy. I don't think you really want to do this. You might feel like you want to do it, but you don't want to do it. I said, no, no, listen, I, I want to do this. And he's like, okay, you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. So he sets me up uh, to go to this small town in Missouri called Bolivar, Missouri, Bolivar, Missouri, and uh, and go to a bull riding camp with a you know group of professionals who teach amateur bull riders you know these techniques to ride bulls. And um, I think because I'm ignorant, I think you know, look, I'm a fighter. I'm really good at with my grips because I'm used to grabbing on on geese and I'm used to holding stuff. I'm used to climbing ropes. I, I do all kinds of different climbing and rappelling. Um, so I got this and I'm used to in jiu-jitsu and other different martial arts and things. I'm really good with pinching my knees together and using my heels and doing all this. So I got this, man. I got this. This is, this is, you know, those are normal people. I got this. And, uh, so the first, the first experience that I had was, you know, this whole protocol of everything that I didn't understand. And they had to teach me everything from, you know, chalk and resin and how to hold the ropes and how to use spurs, like all this stuff that I just, I didn't even know. And I get on a bull and, you know, they're asking me, are you sure you're ready? You good? You know, and the gate opens up, man. And this little tiny bull, I don't, I don't mean a man size bull. I mean, this tiny little bull. Yeah, that kids little would steer. Ride yeah. Little tiny one threw me, you know, 20 <laughs> feet in the air and, you know, landed almost on my face. And it's like, holy shit, that's crazy. Like, you know, it, almost like the jujitsu experience again, where I can't really process that that was possible. I can't really process this little thing had so much power and that I couldn't maintain control in my grip. So again, went to do it. Same result. Another bull, a little bit bigger even, uh, but same result. Uh, and it was like, holy shit, these things are crazy strong. You know, I, I, you know, had some understanding, but not to that degree. And so I ended up with, with 12, uh, bulls and I made the buzzer twice in 12, which was quite a feat for me because the first three just kicked my ass completely. And I, I had no really understanding of what I was getting into, but the level of respect that I gained for bull riders. And I, and you and I talked about this earlier, but you don't get that it's a massive international sport. And yeah. when I went behind the scenes, I had met bull riders from everywhere and a ton of them were Brazilian. I'm like bull riding from Brazil. Like you think about Rio and you think about the beach and you think about all these things like, Nope, tons of rural areas and, and, you know, rodeos are massive and bull riding is a way out. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. So the the amount of respect that I have, looking at, at your your hand with uh you know like a soft cast on it, and and like I, I know exactly what that feels like, not from fighting, but from riding bulls, man. And it just you know your um, ability to appreciate nature is is shifted or changed after that experience. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I I think did you did you ride twelve bulls in a week, or did you ride them all in one day? No, I rode 12 in a week. So, That's you know, basically they were, Yeah, they were they were working with us. I mean, 
I have to say there were some um, country kids that kicked my ass and I saw them, you know, out of like a dozen rides, I saw them half a dozen times make the buzz. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I got to do this. I got to do this. I, I was trying as hard as I possibly could. And I was combining, you know, mental fortitude and toughness and strength with the techniques that they were showing. And it still wasn't working out in my favor most of the time. So, um, you know, 12 bowls in five days, I get that that's a lot, but you know, I, I still, at the end of that, I was like, man, I need more. I need more. I need more because I'm trying to conquer this thing. And I realize that it's, it's not an easy feat and you're not going to do it in five days. I, I get that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really cool, unique experience that because I was a city boy, none of my friends had ever done. And once you start doing it, I don't know if you have this, but once you start doing it, like I became more and more passionate about oh, it as 100%, I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh man, I got to do this. I got to, I'm got to defeat this thing. I got to control. I waited in a podcast and in, in a simple conversation, you have to do it. You have to feel it. It's a visceral experience and, and there's no way to convey it to somebody until they physically go and do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So the I, I've only been riding since January, right? I think I started right after the first of the year. And when I started, it was a very similar experience, right? Where like, I had no reason why I started it. I did all my research, changed my entire training, my, my workout plan, right? I was like, I did the I looked it up, your average bullfight or bull rider is like five foot four, okay, 120, 140 pounds, right? And I was like, I'm 5'10". 190 like yeah this is not yeah. good you know and it's funny because like as you talk to some of these guys it's they're like you will never outpower a bull no matter how hard you try they're like oh. so at the end of the day it's all about balance and technique you got to be able to engage your core lock your spurs in and watch your shoulders everything else hang on for dear life and send it so yeah, man, it's, 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 you know, what you're saying resonates with me because of my experience. But if you said those same words to me the week before I went, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. I mean, that's, you're literally articulating what I do for training every single day for the last 25 years. So no, that's no different. And it's yeah. very, very different. Yeah. I've seen some kids get knocked out. I've seen some crazy people. Well, videos of guys get thrown, kicked. So it's, yeah, uh, that brings up, that brings up another point and, and we touched on a little bit, but, um, you know, prior to this, I had, um, gone to Corrida del Toros, which is the running of the bulls <laughs> in Pamplona, And, you know, you, you go because it's this thing that's been going on forever, hundreds of years. And you go through these old Spanish streets in, in Pamplona and, uh, it's, it's a crazy experience. People are drunk and it's, it's silliness, but they let these bulls out, you know, they, they prod them, they let them out and they're pissed and they're running up these cobblestone streets and going, you know, through these S turns and all this stuff. And then, they go into uh, basically a ring, right? And so it's 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 the Plaza del Toros, and then they bring him in. I didn't know this because I hadn't done you know my my background on this. I was more interested in the experience, and I didn't look at the technical side of it. But they let him into this pen, and then once they're in the pen, they put these um, like these big corks on their horns so they can't gore people, and then they let them back out with all the the people that ran that made it into the Plaza de Toros, and then they're just throwing them around. and And I, uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, as long as it doesn't gore me, I'm good. This thing can't really, you know, as long as it doesn't step on me. And went, okay, cool. And one came up, kind of like almost walking. Then it put its head down, and I, I stiff armed the top of its head. And it threw me over an eight foot wall. So it threw me nine feet into the air just by taking its head and lifting up its head. <laughs> so the power of its neck was like 10 times the power of my total body. And that was my first exposure. But I, I didn't really understand how that translated to being on the back of a bull. I understood, you know, what it's like to be thrown by one, but I didn't get like what it's like to ride one. And so you had mentioned you know, bull riding, but the bull fighters, that is another art, like a completely different art, understanding the bull, understanding their psyche, understanding these small radius turns and movements and angles. Um, but anything to do with the bull, I have an immense amount of respect for it's, it's phenomenal. And that's a, a, an unbelievable creature. Yeah, it's fun. I, uh, I enjoy it. I don't know how much longer I'll be able to keep it up. So <clears throat> 
All right, man. Yeah, so- I, I think the shelf life is 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 rather short for most people. I mean, it, I know that in my my short five days of doing it, uh, I walked away with a ton of new injuries that I hadn't had from MMA and, and jujitsu. Dude, yeah, I don't know how you did twelve in a day. I might do two. Uh, I'll do two, one to two every two weeks. That was kind of what yeah, I we, was doing. We were doing, we were doing an average of close to two a day. So it yeah. was like training and working on stuff and then a ride and then correction. And then some of the guys were even looking at video yep. saying, look, this is what you did wrong. This is where it's at. And, you know, cause it's difficult to explain those small nuances. Right. And so they'd show the video and then they'd get another bull in the day and then they'd go back to look at stuff and, and course correction. And, uh, but yeah, I, I, dude, 12 bulls in five days for me. It, this sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy, but it wasn't enough. I was so thirsty by the time that I left. If if I wasn't going straight to a job after that, I would have set up the next run. Yep. Now, you know, yeah, I think at 50, it's uh it's a little <laughs> different. I have too much to lose and I'm already broken, but it's it's fascinating. So anyway, yep. moving right. on from bulls. Moving on for bulls. Well, yeah, man. I think we've covered a lot of kind of your background, right? So let's let's maybe kind of shift a little bit to some of your writing and uh, the book that you've got out now. And I think that I'm looking at one that you're going to have later this year too. So if you don't mind walking me through kind of uh, the books that you've got, what they're about, who they're geared for, and uh, you know why why we need to get them out there. Well, the first book that I wrote was a book um, called All Access. And that book was basically a manual for people doing tour security. Because when I started, there was nothing in the realm of tour security. And I had come from kind of what they call PSD, um, military style, protective, you know, service operations, uh, personal security details, that kind of thing. Very different than executives. And then celebrities, very different from that. And then touring its own little niche. So I couldn't find anything on it. Um, I had been doing it about 10 years. And I said, you know what, I'm going to create essentially a, a small book, a manual to tell people, you know, who are the key players? What do they do when you come in? What's your day like? You know, what gear do you need with you? What can you expect to experience? How do you offset certain things? So I wrote that book maybe 13, 14 years ago. And, um, you know, that book was just a simple guide and it's very specific to, to tour security. So for the average person, it really is useless. Um, people that want to go into tour security, people that are in tour security, it has a lot of value. Um, but you know, for me, it was a big deal to write the first book on a subject matter. Um, so that, and then, um, I had written a book on use of force and, and defensive tactics, uh, but it was more of a manual style and it was geared toward military and law enforcement. And a lot of the stuff didn't make sense. So, um, I'm, rewriting that now and it, it's it's getting ready to come out but we'll talk about that in a bit and then the third one was uh, protection form from humanity which is basically a book that outlined different systems and processes processes and strategies that could be utilized by anybody but it comes from the military and law enforcement protective world but you could put it into play you know with your family with your house with you know your business um, that book probably of all the books that i've written protection form from humanity is the one that is it's something that holds value for anybody. Anybody can take that book, they read it, they can apply it immediately and, and see the benefits of that. Assuming they have, you know, the stomach for protective service information and it's, it's kind of boring. So um, what I'm releasing now, what's just come out is called Protective Perspective, uh, A Peek Behind the Curtain. And what that is, is basically a book that is a collection of photographs from a, a tour that occurred in 2022. So the first major tour going back to the road after COVID yeah. and seeing how things work. So um, I talked to my clients that, hey, I, I want to do a book that is more of a picture book because a lot of people, they don't like the manuals, right? So I have like field manual type books. And uh, if you're into that particular thing, you love it, you eat it up. But if you're just an average person and you're not interested in, in protective service operations, it's kind of boring. So I said, I want to do something more for the masses. People ask me questions about this all the time. I want to give them something without giving away everything. And so I started snapping photos and then writing a summary or like a concept page. So you'll get on one page, this image, and then you'll get the thought behind it or how it connects into the protective mindset. So it's through the lens of the protector um, on a real world tour with a massive act. Um, 
in that book, it, that book's doing great because it, it works for people, right? So one page you see this image and it's got, uh, you know, like a tractor trailer truck with these eight inch spikes sticking out of the wheel. And, you know, I write about a personality profile because we, we frequently do personality profiles on the people that we have to deal with so that we're suited to present information to them in a specific way so that they can digest that information. Mm -hmm. And so, something like that if i look at your vehicle and i can see these eight inch spikes sticking off your wheels uh it, it tells me a lot about your mindset and kind of how you see things or how you think about things and it's not 100 percent, but there's a high degree of certainty with it so writing about those components writing about the tools we use writing about um what it is like to live on a tour bus, right? Like living in a small little coffin bunk and how we, we do different things. Um, writing about what it's like to drive onto the tarmac, get on a private jet, you know, and have people handling stuff, all the people in, involved or, um, you know, it, what it's like to deal with different people in foreign countries and how you build bridges. Um, you know, in, in that case, I was showing a challenge coin and how something like that kind of, allowed us to get access to some other area because they were really big on that. And it was, it was something that was significant to them. So I hit on all the topics kind of along the way that, that unfold for, for uh, protecting celebrities. at trouble. Okay. So is it, if I were to go pick this book up and start reading it, is it more of a, uh, a guide for me to go kind of step into this world or is it more of a, a memoir slash biography? Uh, well, it's a little bit of both of those things, but really what it is, is, is what it says, a peek behind the curtain. So it lets you kind of see how things can entertain it behind the scenes. So, you know, I've even talked to people about it being, you know, something more significant than getting an all access pass or a backstage pass of some sort, um, because you're seeing things not dressed up, not hidden, but as they are, and then how they kind of fit together. So I think for an average person, it's an interesting read because it's not super complicated and we don't get into the weeds on the technique, but we give them a, a kind of a thought to look at and associate it with. And then there's layers in each of the pictures um, by design. So it's interesting in, in that it could be like a coffee table book or somebody wanting to go into protection who's trying to see stuff and understand what you wrote in more of a field manual. Now they can see these pictures that correlate to a specific idea or concept within protection. So I think it has a, a lot of value on both ends of it. And I think it's something that can be digested by anybody. It's, it's, it's not uh, super complex, but I think it's, it's fun and interesting in a way that my other books are not. So that's, that's my take on, on this production, but, um, it's, it's out now. It's my, my opinion is that you want it in paperback format, right? I, I don't think this translates as well to e-format. Um, I released it in e-format. You can get it on, you know, Apple iBooks. You can get it on Amazon for your Kindle. You can get it, you know, whatever that's, that's all great. Um, but it's not the same. This is a book that you need to feel. It's a book that you need to see. You need to be able to kind of go through the pages. And you, even the, the the format that I released it on in e-format is a two-page format. Like if you consume it in one-page format, it loses a ton of the value. So I would advocate that people get this book in a physical form as opposed to in an e-form. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So... If a guy or gal were to go pick these up, read through it, maybe has questions, want to kind of poke people's brains, are you open to kind of fielding questions? Do you have other reference sources that people can go look at in terms of like tour security, kind of fighting, the mental aspect of everything? Yeah. So we offer a training course in that. And there are very few at this point because we actually operate in the real world doing the thing we're teaching. You find most people either operate in the world or they operate in the training world. And in our case, we're so busy with the actual operations uh, of protective details that we don't do that many training courses, but we still do usually two to three times a year. 
uh, we'll do a, a civilian training. Um, and then we do government stuff that typically is, you know, probably four times a year. Usually that's focused on use of force and, and defensive tactics, but they can go to the website, which is tourprotection.com. They can look at, you know, the company's history. They can look at my history. They can look at the books. Um, they can look at, at some of the clients that we have. Uh, any client that lists us, we will list them. You don't list, you know, C-suite executives or dignitaries or governmental, but um, we do release most of our celebrities. Um, so they can go look at that. Um, and then we list training on the site, on the website, tourprotection.com are, are a number of different trainings that we offer. We don't put the dates because those vary frequently, but if they're interested in, in attending one of the courses, they can hit us up and we can tell them when the next one's going to be, or if it's not going to happen this year, whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, they can email us or they can look at Instagram. We're, we're pretty new to Instagram that just started during COVID. Uh, we stayed away from social media pretty heavily because it's, it's counterproductive to what we do for the most part. Sure. Um, but, uh, we're at tour training on Instagram and, and that's the only social media we have. So there's some bits and pieces on that, but that's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty weak site in terms of, of sources of information, tourprotection.com is the, the way to go. Okay. So then in reference to the website, also you said, uh, to get the books, uh, I heard you can get them, uh, Apple, Apple books, Amazon. Can you order paperback through your website and Amazon as well? Uh, yes. So it's harder to find Amazon kind of buries that cause it's not through them. It's through a third party vendor for the paperback. Sure. It is available on Amazon, but that's difficult to find. It's really easy to find the one they control, which is the ebook. Um, and it's also available on our site. And so I think at some point, um, the people that manage that component of the product, uh, will have it on Google books and we'll have it on, um, Walmart books and all that kind of stuff. But right now you have, our site, uh, tourprotection.com to get the paperback copy or Google, or excuse me, uh, Amazon. Uh, and like I said, Amazon's hard to find or the ebook on Apple or Amazon. And then it's just going to, it's going to broaden out right now. We have, um, a, a specific format. They call it fixed formatting for eBooks. Um, and that means very limited number of people can carry that. Um, so that's why it's on those two main platforms, but, um, the other books are also uh, on there as well. So protection form from humanity and all access. And then as you noted, there's another one in the works, which is going to come out soon um, called underpinning. And really that's more for, um, you know, defensive tactics, instructors and trainers and, and people operating in the military or law enforcement space. But it's a good book for civilians too, because they can kind of understand the laws, the rules, how the constitution applies to, to police use of force and things like that. And then a bunch of different, um, processes and procedures in addition to systems and, and laws that apply. And when I say laws, I mean laws like Hicks law and, and uh, Yerkes Dodson law and things like that. So um, that's coming next. So, so stand by for that. But uh, in the moment, I'm here to promote protective perspective. Okay. Very good. Well, I will make sure I will try and find the, uh, the Amazon link. Uh, if not for sure, your guy's website will be in the episode description, but, um, otherwise, man, um, we've covered a lot of ground, a couple of fun stories, the books and everything. Is there anything left unsaid for today that you're like, this is very important for me to share? Uh, I think we can kind of go back to what we were talking about before, which is that you know, the, the long road, even though it's hard, is full of lessons, life lessons. Um, a lot of people give a lot of advice now. I, I being new to social media, um, I'm learning how much BS is out there. People selling you a story that when you look at it in reality, that's not the life they live. That's not who they are. They, they sold you this bill of goods and I see young people buying it. And it's a lot of superfluous BS. So, you know, the takeaway from my perspective is, figure out what you want to do, figure out who's already doing it, figure out how you can link up with them or look at the real path they took, not the, the social media version and kind of see, you know, what it is. And if, if you look at people's bios and histories, a lot of times they, they, they list all of the accolades and all the good things, but what they don't list is the most important, which is all of the failures and all of the problems and all of the obstacles and roadblocks that they overcame to get to that point because that's not sexy. So they don't list that, but that's the most critical. So that's the takeaway from, from my perspective. I'm talking to people who want to get into my field or something similar to my field. Okay. Very good. No, that is not always all sunshines and rainbows. That's a fact. 
<laughs> cool. Well, Mr. Todd, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for sitting down and being patient with me while I was traveling and trying to get all my ducks in a row. So thank you. I hope, hope sometime I get to uh, watch you ride some bulls. Yeah. I'm hoping after we get all recovered, um, my goal is to <laughs> my goal is to at least get in one rodeo this summer. That's like the end all be all is go find some fancy rodeo and actually yeah, so have for some- for people that can't see you right now, obviously, uh, you know, soft cast on one side and kind of a little splint on the thumb on the other side, but yep. certainly looking like uh, <laughs> someone who's ridden some bulls. Oh, when I went in, so I uh, I. I rode, I rode good. It was my, it was like a six second ride. It was the best one yet. Six bowl, right. Hit my goal. Everything was good. And I, I got off and I like, couldn't like, I like the adrenaline dump, you know, everything's shaking yes. and like yes. my glove was taped up. Right. Cause you wear your glove. It's all rosined up. And I was like sitting there with my knife and I couldn't cut the tape. I was shaking <laughs> so bad. So I had one other cowboy, like cut it off. Right. And I pulled it off and I looked at my friend and I was like, Haley, I think I broke my thumb. And she's like, what? And you look at it and it's like two times the size of my other thumb. Right. I will go to the the doc's office the next day. And I was like, yeah, I fell, whatever. And the lady was like, oh my God, you need to get like, you're going to the orthopedic surgeon and all this stuff. And they take a, <laughs> they take an x-ray and there's like a hairline fracture, like right underneath yeah. my fingernail. And yeah. I was like, Advil water, don't do dumb stuff. And we're good. So we're, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, that what you just said is exactly what the military prescribes for someone who's had a limb blown off. Like here's some Motrin, here's some water, walk it off. You're good. Yeah. yeah. You're like, but I don't have a leg. So <laughs> thanks for nothing. <laughs> so yeah, it was funny. This, it, man. this could have been healed, I think, but I was out last weekend with one of my buddies and we were drunkenly punching bags and playing with ropes and moving steer around for the ropers. So I need to stop being an idiot for a week and let everything come back to earth. Part of being a man and especially a young man is you got to be an idiot. That's where, that's where it's all at, right? You're (laughs) going to, you're going to, you're going to look back and you know, you're going to laugh at some of the silly shit you did, but man, part of being an idiot is, is, is learning and having fun and experiencing it through, through a different lens, man. Cause when you get older and you get, you know, to be all, you know, crotchety and, it's a, it's a different life. So that's, yeah. you're doing the good stuff, man. You're, you're, you're on the right path for, for, you know, happiness in the end. I'm trying. I learned, that's a whole other story. I learned that lesson this last year is that there's a lot, there's a lot of life I have to live before I get too old not to. Yeah. But you're never going to stop learning that lesson. You're going to, you're going to learn the same lessons over and over until you start living a certain way. And that, that just takes time, man. You yep. know, but Anyways, man, I appreciate you. I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I can yammer all day, but um, we'll uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you again. All right, thank you. Good thank talking. You. Bye, Todd. Once again, man, thank you for taking the time. Uh, in the episode description will be a link to both his Instagram and the website. Uh, so if you're interested in picking up any of his books, uh, please feel free to use those and get after it. Otherwise, I hope you all have a wonderful week, and we will catch you next time. Bye.